Good morning. Thanks again for joining us again here online with South Suburban Christian Church. Uh, uh, my name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor. And I just want to tell you how much of an honor it is that you're taking time to uh, uh, be with us this morning, to worship with us, uh, or if you're watching us on YouTube uh, or listening to us on SoundCloud. Thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your day uh, to be here with us as we seek to worship the Lord and discern the wisdom of God from His Word. Uh, we're excited about what God is doing in the midst of this ministry. Last week we had seven more notifications that folks had either rededicated their lives or made a decision for Jesus Christ. We're, we're just um, overwhelmed at how God is, is using this ministry for His glory want to thank you, too, for your financial support, for your continued financial support, and for those of you who have uh, been contributing to this ministry and to our congregation. Thank you so much. It's because of your generosity that we're able to do what we do, uh, not only here in this community, but through this medium as we reach out uh, with the love of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, today, uh, we're continuing in our series, uh, The Stories of Jesus. We're going to be looking today at John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I uh, would encourage you to open up to John 2. If you don't have your Bibles, just take a few minutes and run and get it real quick and come back. Uh, we'd like for you to follow along with us. While you're getting your Bible, a couple of, um, uh, uh, well, mainly one thing that I want to remind us, and we're waiting for the folks to get their Bibles and get back to their chairs or couches. You probably have heard of this story. It, it at one time was pretty popular. It was a story about King George III, who was the king of Great Britain, and he kept a daily diary of all of his activities that he, that, that he would engage in as king. And on one particular day, he made an entry in his diary, and it was just a few words, and the words were, nothing of importance happened today. That was all that he put in on that particular day. It was just a short one-line entry in the Journal of a King. <laughs> but what you may find interesting is that the date of that entry was July 4th, 1776. Now, as you probably know, that's the date that the Declaration of Independence was published. And King George would not get that publication, that, that Declaration of Independence, uh, until August 10th, 1776. And even when he received it, he scoffed at it. He was confident that the troops that were already in the colonies would be able to uh, put down any rebellion and even persuade the colonies to come back uh, into line and once again pledge their loyalty to the crown of Great Britain. Well, you and I know the end of that story, don't we? General Cornwallis would surrender at Yorktown on October 1781, and the Treaty of Paris, which was the treaty that formally ended the Revolutionary War uh, and brought peace to Great Britain and what then would be called the United States of America on September 3, 1783. You know, sometimes big things happen in really small places. And we don't really see the importance of a seemingly insignificant event until years later, until many battles later until we can get to a point where we're able to look back and see how God's hand was moving in the midst of our lives in the midst of world history 
Well, I hope you're back now if you went and got your Bible. So turn with me now to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, a famous, well-known passage of Scripture called the Wedding at Cana. If you've been to a wedding uh, today or you know, within the recent, uh, uh, near, before the pandemic, uh, the pastor might have said uh, that the wedding at Cana is significant because it was here that Jesus performed his first miracle. And that's the uh, story we're going to look at today. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, this is an interesting account following the first chapter of John. John, the youngest of Jesus' disciples, writes one of the greatest prologues in human history. In John chapter 1, you might even know it by heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not one thing was made that was made. Those words have been used throughout the entirety of Christian history to prove conclusively that Jesus was not just a mere prophet. He wasn't just an enlightened teacher, but he was the Logos, the Word in the beginning with God. It is this text that is the beginning of both the church's and the world's understanding that Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God, of God the Father. That is, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is also God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. It is one of the bedrock declarations of the church of Jesus Christ. That prologue in the first few verses of John chapter 1 is followed by the testimony of John the baptizer, who in verse 29 of chapter 1 declares, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I have said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. 
You'll remember historically, John actually was born before Jesus was. And John continues, And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now these are all pretty grand declarations, probably worthy of an entry in, in a king's journal or a king's diary. And in the concluding verses of that first chapter, John begins to, or Jesus begins to call his disciples. Uh, Andrew, Andrew's brother, Simon Peter, and then a little bit later, Philip and Nathaniel. The story is off to a great start here. Jesus has been declared to be the Word, the eternal Word, one through whom all that has come into existence has come, that He is the Lamb of God. What could come next after such a great declaration? You guessed it, a wedding. Sin is everyone's problem, brothers and sisters, even when we're not paying attention to it. You know, weddings are one of the most unusual events that I think occur in a human being's life. I know that uh, as a pastor, they're one of the most unusual events in, in my life. And, and, and I'll have to be honest, some of them are wonderful, but a lot of them really aren't. I mean, you know, the expectation of one's wedding is that it will be a day that's filled with joy and hopes and expectations for a bright and full future. But unfortunately, as a pastor, and I would think that some of you have seen this too, too often weddings have been times of grief because of the absence of loved ones, because of death, because of divorce. Of course, there's always those situations where the parents of the bride won't speak to the parents of the groom or vice versa. Grooms who arrive hungover, or late, <laughs> or brides whose hair appointments didn't really work out as planned, or whom as they were putting their dress on, suddenly there was the horrible sound of a rip. You know, no one expects that a day which should be immune to all troubles and problems can oftentimes be a day fraught with stress and anxiety. Now, if you're getting ready to get married, just ignore everything I said. It's going to be a great day for you. But for those of us who've been through it, we know that sometimes life's reality can present itself when we're least expecting it. And you know what? It was probably a perfect time, the perfect occasion, a perfect situation for Jesus to do his first miracle. Jesus and his four new disciples, he hasn't gotten to the rest of them yet. They've invited, been invited to this wedding and Presumably, this wedding is of a close friend of, of the family of Jesus, or, or maybe even an extended family member. And after Jesus is told that they're running out of wine, something that would have been brought uh, uh, to the attention of the master uh, of, the, uh, of the wedding and would have been a horrifically embarrassing situation in first century Jerusalem or first century Israel. Jesus orders the servants to fill six stone water jars. Now these six stone water jars would have been used for the rites of purification. Now, now, if we don't know much about that, 
especially as we go back to uh, the law of Moses in the Old Testament, we might just pass over uh, the whole idea that these are stone jars. But, but the fact that they're stone jars is actually really important in trying to understand what their function is and what Jesus is trying to teach through them. Now, as you probably know, and as you've probably seen on the History Channel or on public television when you read or, 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 or watch shows about archaeology or history, we find pottery from the ancient world all the time. It's one of the ways that we learn a lot about cultures and communities archaeologically. And just like many cultures around the world, pottery was important to the Jewish people as well. But certain rituals in the Jewish faith required running water, or living water, as they might have said. Now, that means that's water that is active by natural forces. So, unless you lived near a stream or a river, you didn't have access to living water, because that's the only place that you could get living water. And Leviticus chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 15, there's a whole set of rules and, and laws about how you could do those rites of purification with living water when you did not live near a stream or a river. And the way that you did it is you simply got the water from the stream or river and you put it in a stone jar, not a jar made of pottery, but something that was natural, something uh, that came from earth itself. And if you did that, the water's holiness, if you will, the water's purity, the, the, the water's effect as being living water would be retained. And so these uh, uh, stone jars were extremely important for Jews that didn't live near rivers or streams so that they could fulfill these rites of purification that were so much a part of their faith. Now, the most common ritual that was performed by Jews was a frequent, in some cases daily, rite of purification. They got their influence from Psalm chapter 24. The psalmist writes, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in God's holy place? Only the person who has clean hands and a clean heart. That's from Psalm 24, verse 4. For centuries, therefore, faithful Jewish worshipers had been dipping their hands in these ceremonial waters, in these waters that were kept in stone jars, and then they would take their wet hands, hold them to heaven. It was their way of saying, My heart is pure because my hands are clean. This practice of dipping my hands in these jars and lifting them to you, O God, is proof of the cleanliness of my heart. Now, I've never really been the kind of preacher, uh, preacher that harangues people for their sin and brokenness. <laughs> Most, not all, but most folks already recognize the brokenness that's in their life. They may not admit it to others, but deep within their hearts, pretty much all of us know of our propensity to greed, jealousy, violence, anger, even hatred. Our Jewish forebears understood their need to always seek God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy. 
They understood what it meant to turn to God in times of need. We do too. But what I find really unusual about these stone jars that Jesus has just commanded the servants to fill is that they are, well, empty. Why are they empty? I don't know if any of us can really know why they're empty. Maybe in all the preparations for the wedding, they just forgot their need to make sure these jars kept water in them. Maybe they forgot that in the busyness of the preparations that they would still need God's grace. Maybe in the midst of the joy and the celebration, their need for grace and mercy wasn't forefront in their minds. We're the same way, aren't we? The distractions of the day become the center of our focus, and we, believing that God, of course, is loving and gracious and patient, most of us know that He'll forgive us. And so too often the human predilection is to ignore Him. After all, the demands of the flesh, the shouts of those around us, too often drown out the still and quiet voice of God who invites us into His presence and to his peace, and to his rest. Well, we believe and trust that even in those moments when we become overwhelmed, even in those moments when we're uncertain about what tomorrow will hold, we pray, we hope, we declare that God will be there for us. But God wants more than that from us. And frankly, if we would peer into our hearts, we might say we want more than that too. To walk with Him daily, every moment, to live our lives in Him and not simply invite Him into our lives during those times when we're confronted with the reality of our own inabilities, our moments of fear, our moments of worry. You see, I think these jars in John chapter 2 speak to this family's understanding that they, like all of us, are in need of grace and mercy. The ancient Jews understood that they needed to come before God. A, a tangible way of saying, I need to be pured, made pure, purified. And yet... These jars were empty. A sign of their spiritual emptiness. A sign of the spiritual emptiness of God's people. Some scholars have said that's what they represent. A sign of our own spiritual emptiness. All right, I'm going to stop preaching and start meddling. We have our own empty jars today, don't we? Bibles that are left dusty on our shelves. Or worse yet, Bibles that are displayed in a place of prominence in our homes, but never read and never studied. We may have a cross of silver or gold around our necks, as if they are the crosses that Jesus bids us to take up and carry with us in Matthew 16, 24 reluctant to recognize that the cross we are invited to carry 
is a willingness to step into the story of Jesus and like Him, suffer for the sake of others. We have church buildings, some ornate, others comfortably furnished. And yet we have confused the building with the true church, which is you and me, the people of God. Just this past week, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who was sharing his own reflections on that idea and that understanding. And he asked me, he said, Ike, who, who would walk into somebody's house, into their front room, look at a recliner and say, wow, you have such an awesome dad or you have such an awesome father? Or which one of us would walk into a baby's nursery and look at a crib and have the audacity to say, what a beautiful baby. That's ridiculous. You and I both know that the recliner is not the husband or, or, or the father. The crib is not the baby. They're merely things that hold those folks for a time. But the value is who they actually are. And yet so many of us become imprisoned to the idea that it's the building that somehow makes us the church. Whether it's what the building looks like, or even whether or not we are in it. Because frankly, I might suggest to you that the church is truly church when it's not in the building, but in the world. It is the blood of Christ that truly cleanses us. And heals us. As the water that Jesus commanded to be placed in those jars was understood throughout the centuries by the church to be a foreshadowing of baptism, so is the conclusion of that miracle the foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. The teaching of the Jewish rabbis at the time had given instructions as to the amount of water needed, uh, how much water would be necessary to do this rite of purification where you would dip your hands into it and raise it up to heaven. And, and here, here was the conclusion the Jewish scholars had said in the time of Jesus. You need about two cups of water. Now one of those jars that Jesus commanded to be filled, filled to the brim, held enough water for a family to do the rite of purification every day for about a month. When Jesus had all six of those jars filled to the brim, there was enough water for over 2,000 people to do the rite of purification. That is, the entire city could fulfill the rite of purification with those six jars. Symbolically, I think this is John's way of saying that the purification, the grace, the forgiveness... Is such an extravagant volume that it's enough to cleanse the whole world. With the water turned to wine, and that gift that Jesus himself gave to the fruit of the vine on that last supper in the upper room, when he took the cup in his hand and raised it and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of of sins for many.
One of the great church leaders of century past was a man named Jerome. Uh, Jerome actually translated the Bible from Greek into Latin. Jerome is uh, one of those figures that is wonderfully important to me. As a matter of fact, uh, there's one story where he receives a letter from a student, and the student says, what is the proper clothes that we should wear when we lead worship? And Jerome wrote back to him, you should be clothed with humility, grace, and peace. There's another great story of Jerome that, that is specific to our lesson today. Jerome writes about a dream that he had one night where Jesus visited him. When he was awakened and he saw Jesus, or at least within the dream, he immediately got up and got all of the money that he had in the house and he laid it at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, I, I don't want your money. Jerome assumed that Jesus demanded more of him. And so in addition to the money that was at Jesus' feet, he went all around his house, gathered all of his belongings, all of his possessions, his furniture and valuables, and laid those at the feet of Jesus too. And Jesus looked at Jerome and said, I don't want your possessions either. Brokenhearted, thinking that Jesus was refusing to accept the best that Jerome could give to him, got on his knees in front of Jesus and said to Jesus, well, then what can I give you? What do you want from me? And Jesus simply replied, give me your sin. That's what I came for. Jerome, in his dream, sits there dumbfounded as Jesus continues to teach him in the midst of that dream and says, I came to take away your sin, your brokenness, your misery. Give that to me. What an exchange. What an exchange of gifts. Our sin, and we get from Him His grace and His mercy. It is the answer to where you are today. Back at the beginning of the text, we see John who at the cross, Jesus turned to him and said to John and his mother Mary, this is your son, to John, this is your mother, to John, this is your son, to Mary, this is your mother, to John. John and Mary developed a relationship after the resurrection of Christ that was deeper than perhaps any of the other disciples because Mary lived with John and John took care of her and cared for her. And yet, in this chapter, in John chapter 2, John never mentions Mary's name. Did you catch that? Look back again at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Even in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him. John never mentions Mary's name. Rather, Mary's identity is no longer rooted in what she did. A woman who endured the embarrassment of of being thought of by uh, 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 friends and neighbors and family that she had somehow had this child out of wedlock. I mean, after all, how many would have believed in a virgin birth? This woman who was betrothed to Joseph and, and, and having to travel in the last few uh, weeks of her pregnancy to Bethlehem. The, the, this woman who the king sought to kill her child just now born and now being forced to go to Egypt and then coming back and traveling to Nazareth, never knowing what tomorrow would hold. All of the things that this woman endured, even Scripture itself said that Mary was such a great woman that all nations would call her blessed. And even to this day, we remember those passages from the Gospels. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Elizabeth says to her when she comes to visit. And yet, this great woman, as John describes the exchange between her and Jesus, simply calls her the mother of Jesus. You see, in the midst of all of the greatness of who Mary was, and she was a great woman, in the midst of all of her greatness, who she really was, was defined by her relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we say to you, and we'll say to you again, that it's not so much about inviting Jesus into your story when it's convenient for us, but it's about us accepting the invitation to step into His story, to be identified based upon who He is. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. And as the Bible says, because we are brothers and sisters of Christ, we are heirs and co-joint heirs with Him. For God in heaven is our Father. You see, that's the beauty of what it means to step into the story of Jesus, to have our story reshaped and retold now, not in the light of our brokenness, not in the light of our frailties, not in the light of our fear, but in the joy and victory of Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful story, as I conclude today, by Margaret Burks. You may have heard of her. She was a famous missionary to the nation of Tanzania. She talks about a baptism that she watched once in East Africa. Some new believers had followed the missionary into a river that had nearly dried up from the summer drought. The water was so shallow that the missionary had to scoop out a place near the deepest portion of the river in order to get enough water to immerse these new believers. And there, as the converts sat in the sand, there was just enough water to lower one person at a time. The baptismal ceremony continued and Margaret continued to watch from a distance. And when the missionary 
called a young boy into the shallow water. He lowered him down, raised him up again. And as he raised him up, the little boy broke away from the missionary and began to run down the dried up riverbed shouting, I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! And when the missionary asked the boy what he was doing, he explained that when the missionary said that people were buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, he believed that he was going to die in the process. <laughs> now, those of you who are listening today, you might chuckle with me at that child's understanding. We may have seen similar circumstances ourselves in the faces and conversations of our own children but as margaret told that story she ended it with this question that child thought that baptism would kill him and yet he was willing to do it anyway so that he could be in christ would you do the same If you are prepared today to step into the story of Jesus, would you say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as Lord and Savior? If you've made that declaration today, would you let us know so that we can walk with you, pray with you, support you as you begin this new life in the story of Jesus? Merciful God, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for this great wedding day where Jesus declares to us that his grace and his mercy is sufficient, that his love is extravagant. Thank you for the gift of baptism. Thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper where we are reminded of your extravagant love, your extravagant grace and mercy. May we never, ever doubt that you are faithful to your word, that you have called us to yourself and into your story. In Jesus' name, amen.